Welcome to the spring semester. Oh, yeah. Freshmen, congratulations. We actually consider you semi-official now. You have experienced all that college has to offer. I mean, you have been through that initial move-in day where it's just absolute chaos and you end up with somebody else's refrigerator in your dorm because somehow they got switched on the way up and you meet all these random crazy people and then you've been through that you know, weirdness of those first couple days where you're going to your classes for the first time and you're getting your syllabus and the professor's just going through all 15 weeks of how he's methodically planned out how he's gonna torture you the next 15 weeks. And then you endure that torture for 15 weeks and in the midst of enduring that torture for 15 weeks, uh, <clears throat> you eat a lot of comfort food so you gain about 15 pounds, a pound a week. And then you get to the end of it and you take your finals and you're set free from that bondage, and then you move out, you know, and you go home, and you spend some time with your family for a few days, uh, a few weeks, and then uh, you move back in, and it's just a cycle that's gonna repeat itself for about seven or eight more times for you. So welcome back. And uh, you freshmen, you've experienced it. I'm glad that you're here. Now, how many seniors do we have here tonight? Okay, pause. How many seniors do we have here tonight that are actually planning on graduating in May? A lot less, but still, uh, still a few of them. So, you know, as, as, we're, as I was thinking ahead to this semester and just, you know, and praying and, and, and trying to plan and think about, okay, so this first night, I, you know, what is going on in, in the minds of those seniors where this is your last semester that you're starting? And for me, I went back to my last semester in college, my senior year, and for me at that point, I was like totally and completely jaded with school so ready to be done, didn't care, it was a run out the clock situation for me, and so unfortunately, a lot of my classes, you know, you get your syllabus the first day, first thing you check is what? Okay, so y'all didn't check the same thing I did the first day, I checked attendance policy, uh, and so unfortunately, my senior year, most of them had an attendance policy, so, so for me, I had this kind of routine if I'd show up a little bit early so that I could get one of the seats against the wall, and then just, you know, casually, I could lean my head against the wall and relax, sleep during class, and in my very first day of my uh, last semester in college, uh, I was in this class, I'd had this professor before, I couldn't understand anything he was talking about because the, the, the subject was way over my head. The previous one, it was microeconomics, then I had him for my, uh, macro, which is the opposite, whatever I said the first time. And uh, he's going through the syllabus, and, and all I brought to class was a notebook just so I looked like I was semi-prepared. This was before, you know, most everybody brought computers, I guess, uh, to their class. I wasn't cool yet. And, uh, and so I had my notebook, and I leaned up against the wall, had my hands on my notebook, and very first day of class, uh, five, ten minutes, like, I'm asleep. And uh, the thing, though, with me is, like, when I first fall asleep, you know, I, I'm dreaming. And, and back then, I was, like, still totally in love with basketball, still am now, but... You know, at that point, I was probably dreaming about basketball. And, you know, when you dream you're about to dunk on somebody, you twitch, typically. And uh, I was probably dreaming that. I don't know. But I twitched. All I remember is I twitched. And uh, my hands were on my notebook. And my notebook flung out that way. And I just jacked this chick in the face with my notebook <laughs> on the very first day of class, my senior year. And uh, <clears throat> not a good way to start the senior year with a professor. But, you know, I was thinking through some other things, too, with, with what y'all are going through. You know, this is your last semester. And one of the questions you're probably beginning to ask yourself is, all right, the end is near for college, and what am I supposed to do now? I mean, you're probably starting to feel that pressure. Some of you may not feel it yet, but I'll tell you this, after spring break, which by the way, spring break's only a few weeks away, after spring break, you've got four weeks until you graduate. 
So you'll probably, if you don't feel it now, feel it after spring break. You'll start to feel the pressure of that question, what am I supposed to do now? Some of you, you'll push off the pressure a little bit longer because, man, your plan is once you're done with this shindig here, you're moving back in with mom and dad and you're living off their insurance until you're 25. But the reality is, like, when you're 25, it's law. They can no longer pay for your insurance, okay? So, like, at that point, if it doesn't hit you after spring break, it'll at least hit you by then. What in the world am I supposed to do now? And the reality is, you freshmen... And sophomores and juniors, everybody in this room, that question is the question that we should all be asking. Like, what am I supposed to do now? And I was thinking, you know, if that's the question that all of you should be asking, and the reality is the question that I should be asking, what am I supposed to do now, then it's probably true that collectively we need to be asking that question together. What are we supposed to do, like, right now? And the last, last year, uh, in fact, it was this first overflow of, of 2011 last year, we began, I, I kind of told you, all right, there's four prayers that we're going we're gonna to go through and we're going to pray uh, for a year. And so for the past 12 months, we've been praying over four prayers. And it's really created the framework for our ministry, the direction of our ministry. And uh, if, if, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, if this is your first time tonight, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I, I want to encourage you, though, last, last fall, uh, we did a whole four-week series, creatively called Four, uh, on these four prayers. And uh, I would encourage you to go back and, and look at, listen to the podcast on those. And the reason being is because those four prayers have really shaped the direction of where we're going. They've really given us a framework of, of where we're headed. And they're going to continue to do that. But as I was thinking into the new year, I was thinking, man, you know, here we are back, New Year 2012. And, and I feel like we're in a place where we need to come back to that question of, all right, what are we collectively, what are we collectively supposed to do like right, right now? I mean, there's more to this being just a group of people who hopes that more people show up to the group next week. And there's so much more than you simply showing up and putting your butt in that seat or that pew or whatever it is and enduring a you know, 30, 40 minute message from me each week. There's so much more to it than that. And one of my biggest fears, one of my biggest fears in leading this ministry is that we go four or five years or however long you're here and we never like really wrestle with this question. Like, what are we supposed to do? What are we, what are we supposed to do? And so tonight, we're gonna begin this uh, new semester-long series. Um, we're gonna study a whole book of the Bible. And, and the reason that we're gonna do that is uh, the, the book that we're gonna study, which you've already, that's already up there. Thanks for ruining the surprise. Um, it was, written to, it was written to a guy who was leading a group of people who were dealing with this same question. And so open up to 1 Timothy, and as you're opening, uh, I'm going I'm to pray for us. God, I pray that as we, as we kick off this semester at Overflow and we kick off this new study and we just kick off this new year, um, I pray that you would help us to answer this question, what are we supposed to do now? And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got 1 Timothy, if you're there, say, got it. Man, y'all are, y'all, y'all are quick. That's good. All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. Here we go. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and, the, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So typically when you begin studying a book, um, 
You wanna, you wanna take some time to learn the background, you wanna take some time to learn the main players of the story. Now over the next few weeks, we'll be getting to know some of these main players, but for tonight, it'll suffice to give you just this amount of information. Paul, he's the dude who wrote this, this book, and it's really not a book, it's a letter written to another guy named Timothy. Timothy was this young dude living in Ephesus, an old school town, uh, city, really, metropolis, uh, around 60 to 65 AD, about 2,000 years ago, a little less than that, and he was in charge of temporarily leading this gathering of Christians in Ephesus. Now, here's the deal. Like, Timothy, he's, he's trying to lead this group in Ephesus, but it's not been easy up to this point. I mean, a little bit about these believers, these Christians in Ephesus. They were super hungry to have an impact on their city. They were super passionate about seeing change and transformation in Ephesus. But there were a couple problems with that. One is, what we'll see next week, is there were these little bitty false ideas and false facts and false teachings slipping into some of the smaller groups within the bigger group of Ephesus. But on top of that, these, these people, they had like no prior example or no prior standard or model to look at and, and use to model themselves after. I mean, for us, like we can look around, we can see other college ministries, or we can look around and see other churches or other cities where other you know, movements of God have happened. We can look throughout history, read history, and see different models, different standards that have been set and model ourselves after that, learn from those things. But they didn't have that because this was, I mean, this was the beginning. This is where it all started. So Timothy, he's getting really frustrated. Young guy trying to lead these people to impact their city. He's getting really frustrated. And he comes to a point where he just kind of throws up his arms and he says, what are we supposed to do now? And the people are all kind of like that. What are we supposed to do now? And so tonight what I want to do is I don't want to spend really much time on the background and studying Paul and, and Timothy. I want to skip to the heart of this entire letter. I mean, we're going to like skip Nintendo talk, skip all the levels, go straight to Bowser's castle. All right, we're going to go, we're going to go fight him tonight. Uh, so, so we're actually going to go tonight to, to chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is, this is the heart. This is the core of this, of this book, of this letter. Listen to what Paul says, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Now, the whole reason Paul writes this letter, as you can already see, is to answer this question. What are we supposed to do now? And so everything between chapters 1 through 6 is going to, in some form or fashion, relate to this question. What in the world are we supposed to do now? But what we've got to see tonight is that everything that he's gonna write and that we're gonna study over the next 15, 14, however many weeks, it, it is all contingent, all hinges on what he says next in verse 15. So look, look at verse 14 again. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. truth. So the answer to this question, what are we supposed to do now, is totally inseparable from the answer to the question of who are we? And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Let's say like you find yourself in the middle of the outfield at the ballpark in Arlington where the Texas Rangers play or whatever it's called now. You're in the middle of the outfield, okay? Now, you find yourself there, ask this question, what am I supposed to do now? Well, it depends. It depends on who you are. I mean, if you're the center fielder for the Texas Rangers, then what you are supposed to do is when a ball is hit in the air, you are to kick it into gear, run, get onto that ball, catch it before it hits the ground. If it's not hit in the air, hit on the ground, girls, that's called a grounder, uh, then you want to, I'm kidding, I'm gonna get in trouble for that later. Um, 
sorry. Guys, that's called a grounder. Uh, <laughs> so, word vomit. So if it's hit on the ground, you're going to run after it, you're going to pick it up, and you're going to throw it to the cutoff man, depending on where the base runners are before that ball was hit. But what if you're not the center fielder? What if you're one of the grounds crewmen? Well, if you're one of the grounds crewmen and you find yourself in the middle field, or in, in midfield or center field, then you're probably going to do a few things, or one of a few things. You're going to go pick some weeds out of the grass so it looks all pretty and nice. Or you're going to hop back on your lawnmower and finish cutting the grass. Or you're going to go maybe uh, fix up the warning track next to the fence or something like, or something like that. But what if you're not uh, a groundskeeper? What if you're one of those crazy deranged fans that just jumped over the fence? What are you going to do then? <laughs> Don't, but yeah, don't, don't, you shouldn't answer that any further. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, you get, here's what I want you to see. What I want you to see is, what I want you to see is, it's not so much where you are that determines what you do. It's really who you are that determines what you do. And so these people, they found themselves, that Paul was writing to, they found themselves in the middle of this booming metropolis called Ephesus, 2,000, a little less than that years ago. And we find ourselves right in the middle of the not as booming, or booming at all really, town of Denton, surrounded by 51,000 college students between UNT, TWU, and NCTC. And what they did then and what we do now is totally determined by who we are. And so seniors or freshmen, sophomores, juniors or grad students, doctor students or whoever is here, as you ask yourself that question, what am I supposed to do now? You need to understand that that question does not come apart from the answer to the question of who are you? And so look at what he says, what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Go back to verse 14. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these things or these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So the first way that he describes these people he's writing to is he calls them God's household. Now he uses this word household a few times in this chapter. He uses it three times before he does here in verse 15. And household, it could kind of be you know, looked at or interpreted a few different ways. Like it could be like the home, the actual structured home you're in, or it could be like the family. And if you look at verse four, five, and 12 in this chapter, you see he uses this word again, but it's translated twice family, once household, and then again in this verse, 15 household. And it's obvious from the context that he's referring to the family. So he's saying, he's, he's calling these people God's family. And if we're God's family, then that means God's our father and we're brothers and sisters. You following what I'm saying? So, so here's my question. How do you become a part of a family? How did you become part of the family that you're in now? Think about that. There's really, there's really three ways that you can become part of a family. One, most of you said this, you can be born into it by blood. Two, you could be brought into it through adoption. Or three, you can marry into the family. And if you're part of God's family, and I emphasize if, because I have no doubt that not everyone in here is part of God's family, 
And if that's you, I want you to hear everything I say next because I'm really talking to you. If you are part of God's family, then not only were you born into this family by blood, and not only have you been brought into this family through adoption, but you are also marrying into this family. And let me show you what the Bible says about this. Here's what the Bible says about being born into the family. Romans 5, 8 through 9. I'm, I'm gonna whiz through a couple verses here. Don't worry about looking them up. Maybe write down the reference. Romans 5, 8 through 9, Paul says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his, what? Blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Ephesians 1, 7. In Jesus, we have redemption through his Blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then Colossians 1, 19 through 20, he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness, all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And then here's what the Bible says about being born into the, or being adopted into the family. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. And then you get to Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 4, 6. Even though he never uses the word adopted or adoption, this whole passage is, being, is about being adopted into the family. Listen, I'll, I'll just read a couple verses from that. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. In other words, that we might be adopted into the family. And then listen to what the Bible says about uh, being brought into the family by marriage. Ephesians 5, uh, some verses between 25 and 32. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but, I'm not talk- or, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but earthly marriage, it's really just a metaphor, a very significant metaphor, one to be taken very seriously. But it's a, it's a metaphor of, of what is gonna happen between Jesus and his bride, the church. Kind of like baptism, it's just a picture you know, when you go under the water, we put somebody on the water. Prior to going into the water, that's saying, this is who I was before Jesus. And then you go into the water, and it's like, I've put my faith in Jesus, so I'm, I died with Jesus. But Jesus didn't stay dead, so we don't hold you under the water for very long. And we pull you back up, and, and just like you died with Jesus through faith in Jesus, you rose with Jesus from death to new life through faith in Jesus. And marriage also is a picture of what, of what God is in the works of doing right now. I mean, we've got a huge, crazy wedding ceremony coming. And Revelation 19 says this, six through nine, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb, capital L, who is Jesus, has come and his bride, God's family, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, I want to kind of, uh, I want to kind of make a little confession about last night. Uh, before I do this, I'm, I realize I'm probably going to lose my man card, at least for the semester, maybe all of 2012. But uh, before I make this confession about what happened last night, guys, I want you to 
hear this. If you don't hear anything else, I say, well, this isn't the most important thing. But before I did this thing, I'm, I'm giving up my mailing card temporarily for, I want you to know that I was grilling a big, fat ribeye steak. And, uh, and so when I finished grilling this big, fat ribeye steak last night, I took it and I sat down in my living room, turned on the TV to watch some TV while I ate the big, fat ribeye steak. Well, when I turned on the TV, uh, the very first thing that came on was a, uh, was a TV show <laughs> called The Bachelor. And for the record, I've never seen it before, uh, but I don't know if you know what The Bachelor is, fellas. Uh, it's, it's a really ridiculous show. There's this one guy, single, bachelor, hint, hint, uh, and there's these like pool of girls. That I, like, I think there were 15, 16, I don't know, maybe like 20 there last night, still on the show. And the whole point of the show is this guy is trying to find his future wife, his love. And these girls are all fighting to be the one to be married to him and brought into this family. And so basically, uh, the way each episode, I would guess, goes is um, there's just, first of all, this dude is a straight player. I mean, he's like taking these girls out and he's telling them, oh, I think this is really working out, kissing them. And then he takes them back and takes another girl out and does the same thing. And it's pretty messed up. But at the end of the night, there's this, or at the end of the episode, at least last night, there was this uh, rose ceremony. And uh, basically, this guy gives roses to the girls he wants to keep, and then the other ones he doesn't want to keep, he just doesn't give them a rose, and they got to leave the show. Uh, and there's all this drama and crying. And in fact, last night, this one girl, uh, when she realized she wasn't going to get picked, she passed out twice, twice <laughs> in the rose ceremony. And they had to stop the show at one point and revive her, not revive her, but, you know, resuscitate her, not resuscitate her, wake her up. That's what I was trying to say. And so anyways, but if you saw the show, did anybody see the show last night? All girls, look at that. Um, <laughs> Anyways, last night there was, a, there was a twist in the plot, okay? This girl, and I think they said she was from one of the previous seasons of The Bachelor, she drives all the way across the state of California to try and come and meet this guy uh, and sneak her way back onto this show, hoping that at the end of this episode she would be given a rose. I don't remember her name, but what I want you to see in this is, I mean, you should have seen, like, the tension in the room when this girl walked in, okay? I mean, you gotta understand, like, you have 16, 20, or however many girls that are all fighting for this one guy. They're already afraid of being rejected by this one guy, knowing he's only gonna choose one. And so without this new girl, there's already, like, fighting going on and, like, face-to-face fighting, but also, like, you know, they'll be nice to each other in person, but then, like, totally stab each other, like, 18 times in the back when they're not with them, you know? And then, like, uh, lost my place when I was stabbing him in the back right there. So, but then like, uh, uh, you know, so then this girl shows up and, and, and these other girls, you know, they've spent this whole TV season together or however long it really is in real life and, and they've kind of gotten to know each other so some of them like actually kind of get along and, and like each other but then this new girl shows up and they're like, I mean, the whole, when she walks in, she just walks by everybody to the guy and they're all like, uh, who is that? And, the, you know, they're all like freaking out and talking and stuff and then finally the host of the show comes in and introduces her and says, hey, you know, she's gonna, try and talk to what's-his-face and get a rose. And one of the girls just, like, interrupts the guy and goes, um, why are you even here? And, like, they are all like, yeah, why are you here? And they're like, this isn't fair. And they're just, like, going crazy. And it was just, they totally rejected this girl. I mean, like, anyways, she didn't get a rose. She... Well, uh, thanks for calling me out there, buddy. Uh, so anyways, anyways, uh, anyways, why do you think why do you think they rejected this girl uh, like they did? Well, she wasn't part of the family, 
But what I'm getting to is these, these other girls, they themselves were, were f- dealing with this fear of rejection. Going back to what I said a second ago, I mean, they, they were afraid that they weren't going to get the guy and be married in and inherit this whole family situation. And they didn't want to get rejected. They already had 16 or 15 girls in competition. And then this new girl shows up, adds a number to the competition. The percentages of winning this whole thing goes down. But let me ask you this. What would happen if all of those girls knew that they would be chosen and knew that they would all have equal rights when they married this guy? Do you think the show would have changed at that point? Oh, heck yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it, 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 these girls probably wouldn't have been so like hateful towards each other, you know, and like way less drama and all that, way less crying, nobody passing out twice in the middle of the rose ceremony. But I mean, on top of that, they would have probably cared a little bit about each other, you know? And when new girl shows up, they wouldn't have pushed her away and rejected her and been like, why are you here? They probably would have welcomed her in because it didn't matter. Either way, they were all gonna be married to this guy, that's weird, and, and have equal rights. Are, are you kind of following my train of thought here? Let me, let me take it a little bit further. If you've accepted Jesus into your heart, then you don't have to fight to stay in the family. And you don't have to fear being kicked out of the family. You don't have to fight to get into the family. You can't lose that. But you should have a total change in heart and be wanting wanting to fight to get other people, pull other people into the family. And on top of that, you should really care about the people that are already there with you. And so Paul says, we are God's family. And so we're asking this question, all right, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, here's what we're supposed to do based off of how he's described them and essentially us here is, we're not supposed to push people away, but instead we're supposed to love people and pull them in. In 2011, I told you we had four, we had four prayers for the whole year, and, and I, I told our leadership going into this, we we're gonna have one new prayer but keep our four old prayers. And we're not trashing the four old prayers. That still really shapes where we're headed. But we have three new prayers for 2011 based off of what Paul says here. And here's the first. We're praying that our family would grow. And let me explain what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that we're praying that the number in this room would grow. What we're praying for is that our family would grow, that God's kingdom is what would grow. If we don't exist to see people totally transformed by God's grace working through Jesus, then we don't exist for anything worth existing for. And there's some people in here tonight who are not yet part of God's family. And I wanna make sure that you hear this come out of my mouth if you don't hear anything else. Do you realize that Jesus died to save you from your sins? Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood so that you could be born into the family. God sent Jesus to the cross as a down payment in order to purchase you out of slavery to sin and death and adopt you into God's family. And Jesus, he didn't get down on one knee, but he got up on the cross and spread out his arms and showed you how much he loves him or how much he loves you and invited you to marry into the family. 
And if, if, you're, if, if you're not part of God's family, if you're not sure you're part of God's family, then this requires a response from you. The Bible says that if we repent, turn away from our sins, believing in Jesus, and are baptized, that we will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And for many people in here, that began with just simply praying and saying, God, I recognize I've got nothing without you. I've got sin in my life that merits death. And it's only through Jesus and the gift that he's offered through the cross that I believe that our relationship can be reestablished and I can live eternally with you. And so if you're not part of God's family, I would encourage you, not encourage you, urge you, there needs to be a response. So prayer number one, that our family would grow. So go back to verse 14. Verse 14, uh, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So second, he calls these people the church of the living God. The word church here means assembly or a gathering of people, not an assembly hall and not a gathering place. The emphasis here is on, is on people, but it's not just that. The way this word church was used back then, it really carried more than just a gathering of people as its meaning. It was a gathering of people whose who's who had a very defined and definite form of membership. Does that make sense? Very defined and definite form of membership. Yeah, yeah. So, so here, he doesn't just call them a church. He calls them the church of what? The church of the living God. And he doesn't just call them the, the church of God. He specifically says the church of the living God. There's a clear distinction here between, them being, between something being dead and something being alive. Now, what does something that is dead do? Nothing. I remember I, I carpooled with this little girl named Jenny Shores when I was like five years old to and from elementary school. And afterwards, I'd always end up at her house because my parents would pick me up a little bit later. And we'd hang out and play in the backyard and climb on their fort. One day, we're up on the fort, and uh, she, had, she had this really big, crazy lab dog. And, uh, and then she also had like four or five rabbits and she also uh, owned this uh, little fur coat, not like real fur, but like little kid fur coat, you know. And, and so one day we're playing on the fort and I look out in the grass and I see, hey, Jenny, what's your fur coat doing out in the grass? And, and she's like, oh my gosh. So she runs over there and, and uh, we get up there and we realize that's not a fur coat. <laughs> that's one of the rabbits. And so uh, she screams and she's like, oh my gosh, is it dead? And I was like, no, it's not dead. Yeah, it's dead. Uh, and so she runs inside and she's screaming and so mom had to scoop it into the trash can. And, but what happened when I pushed that rabbit and tried to nudge it, see if it was just sleeping? Nothing. Something that is dead does nothing. But what about something that is alive? What does something that is alive do? It moves. I thought you were gonna say everything, nothing, everything, you know, opposites there. Moves, whoever said that. It moves. If it's an animal, it moves. We humans, we move, right? Plants even move, you know, like they look toward, you know, if these plants were in here, they'd be looking towards those lights right there. They move. It doesn't matter how big or small it is, it moves. If it's a microorganism or a little cell, it moves. An atom moves. If it's alive, it moves. So if we worship a living God, that means we worship a moving God. And if God is moving, then we should be too. So, so like your senior year, those of you seniors, like this might be a run out the clock situation for you. Just sleep it through, you know, get through it. It doesn't matter, just make it through the end. But this, this is not a run out the clock situation. 
Your life in Christ is not a run out the clock situation. Your God is on the move, and if he's on the move, then you should be too. So Paul, he says, this is the church of the living God. This is not the church of the dead God. And that's an important distinction that he makes because there's a lot of gatherings of people in this world centered around a dead God. I went to Southeast Asia a couple years ago to a country called Laos. And in this country, everywhere you go, there are, there are temples set up, uh, Buddhist temples set up. In every Buddhist temple that you would go into, there were always two things. One, there was a shrine, a big, huge shrine to Buddha, this dead man. And then surrounding the outskirts of the temple, there were all these other little monuments to all these people's dead ancestors. And it was always really ironic and weird to me that these people gathered with other dead people to worship a dead man or worship alongside a dead man. But we don't gather with dead people to worship a dead man. We gather with other living people to worship a living God. And so Paul says we are the church of the what? Of the living God. And so what are we supposed to do now? We're not supposed to just sit here. Because if our God is on the move, then we're supposed to move with him. We're supposed to move as God moves. So our first prayer of 2012 is that our family would grow, that God's kingdom would grow. Our second prayer is this, that if God is on the move, that we would be on the move. And man, when people see us, when they hear us, when they experience us, the first thing they should think is, man, these people are alive. There's this church I worked back in Lubbock, worked at back in Lubbock, and they had this chapel. uh, And it was old, run down, and used for nothing but funerals. And literally when you walked in, I remember the first time I walked in there and every time after, they just recently renovated it, but you walk in and you take that first breath and literally every single person, the first thought that went through the mind was, man, this place smells like death. And rightfully so. I mean, all they had in there was funerals. I mean, when people walk in here, the first thing they should think is this smells like life. Man, these people are alive And rightfully so, because Paul says we worship a living God. And then you go on a little bit further. Look at verse 14 again. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Lastly, he describes these people and essentially is describing those who are in the family of God. So us in here, if that is you, as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying. And when he's praying, he refers to God's word as the truth. But we need to define this word truth a little bit further as Paul uses it here, calling us the pillar and foundation of the truth. Because what is this entire story about? It's about God's plan of redemption working through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus is talking. He says, I'm the way, the And the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father. Nobody goes to heaven. Nobody has that relationship with God restored except through me, Jesus says. And so when Paul says the the foundation, we are the foundation. What is a foundation? What does a foundation do? Yeah, I mean, it supports. It's the rock bottom or the concrete bottom of a house. And so if the dirt moves, 
the foundation might move a little bit, but typically that house stays intact. There's a few that don't. You ever play the, uh, you ever play the board game, the game of life? Life? You ever play that? You know, you get the little car and they give you a little, uh, you know, if you're a dude, you get a little blue person, stick him in the front seat. If you're a girl, you get a little pink person, stick her in the front seat. And then you got to choose the beginning. Are you going to go to college? If so, you got to take a little bit longer route. Uh, if, if you're not going to go to college and you just get to jump right in the game, you have less privileges, uh, which can hurt you later on. But it'd be really cool. I don't know why my mind's thinking this, but it'd be really cool. You, know, you all ever play Oregon Trail, the computer game? <laughs> can you imagine, like, combining those two games? Like, one, you have to hunt buffalo to get your food and support your family. Uh, but two, like, you know, you draw cards in, li- in the game of life and, like, you know, you get your salary, you get your home, get your family and stuff. And then, uh, you like draw one, it's like, man, all five of your kids just came down with dysentery and your whole car is, you know, dead. Uh, so anyways, back to this. So like the game of life, you know, you go through and, and you draw these cards. You know, you get your salary card, your work card, and then you get your house card, right? And there were some different homes that you could draw. Uh, when Paul talks about us being the foundation of the truth, it's basically the difference between drawing the Tudor mansion, Tudor mansion, or one of those cool country houses, or the beach house, and the split level. You remember the split level? Especially if you didn't go to college, you remember the split level, you know, because you only get to draw one card if you didn't go to college, and you're stuck with the split level. You're like, dang, should have gone to college, sucker. So... (laughs) But that's the difference here. And what he's saying, what he means by that is this. When he calls us the foundation of the truth, what he means is Christians together stand to defend the gospel. But I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, and here's why. Because the gospel, I think, defends itself in a lot of ways. The gospel speaks for itself. Jesus and the gospel markets itself, himself. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross, which is the gospel, which is what Jesus did to save us from our sins, is foolishness to those who are perishing, which it is. And because it's foolishness to people who don't know Jesus, we feel the tendency to like doctor it up a little bit or market it differently or just make it look really cool. Um, but the reality is, as it goes on to say, is to those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so the gospel in and of itself is powerful and all there needs to be. Um, And there is room for apologetics and defending the gospel, but I don't want to spend much time on that. Instead, I want to focus on the first term that he uses here. He says, not only are we the foundation of the truth, but he says we're the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So what else does Paul call us there? The pillar. We're the pillar of the truth. Now, when I first think of a pillar, I don't know about where your mind goes, but I think of the White House. You know, those big old white pillars that are out front of the White House. Also, my mind goes to the Acropolis in, in Greece, and you got those big old ancient buildings with these massively huge pillars. But if you do a little bit more research into Ephesus and what Paul was likely referring to here, is there were pillars in Ephesus that stood apart by themselves from buildings. And these pillars basically functioned as pedestals for the ancient gods that they worshiped back then. And on top of one of these pillars, all by itself out in the middle of the city, would be a statue representing one of these gods. And the purpose of these pillars was to hold that statue of that God high enough to where anybody in the city, wherever they were, could see him or could see it. And you know what this reminds me of as I was, as I was reading through that and seeing that? It reminds me of what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32. He says, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. You know, specifically there, he's referring to the death that he hadn't died yet. He was going to be lifted up onto a cross, hung 
on a cross, and it was that event in history that allowed Jesus and God, through Jesus, to draw all people to himself and save people from their sins. But the reality is, that statement is still true today. When Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And and what I want us to see tonight is, we are a pillar regardless. Like when there's this many people gathered in one room together, we're a pillar. The question though that it really amounts to for us is, what is on top of that pillar? Is it Jesus on top of the pillar? Or is it you on top of the pillar? Is it me on top of the pillar? Is it something else other than Jesus on top of the pillar? So Paul, he says, we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So we're asking ourselves this question, well, what am I supposed to do now? Well, if we're the pillar and foundation of the truth, that means we're not only to defend the truth, but proclaim the truth. Holding Jesus up as high as we possibly can get him so that everybody on campus and everybody in this city can see him. So our first prayer of 2012 is that our family would grow. Lord, let our family grow. Your kingdom grow. Our second prayer is, Lord, if you're moving, then we want to be moving with you. And our third prayer is this, that we'd hold Jesus up so high that everyone in this city can see him. I want to look at one more verse here. We've, we've camped out in verses 14 and 15, but verse 16, listen to what Paul says. He says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Beyond all question, there is no doubt, he says. The mystery of godliness is great. And then he goes on into this weird like poem, hymn type thing, and he says, he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Who is he speaking of in in chapter three, verse 16? He's talking about Jesus. So what's what's the point of 316 here? I mean, by bringing Jesus to the forefront here at the end, here's what he's saying. He's saying the only reason that we can be described, or the only reason that these people in Ephesus, these Christians, could be described in the way that he described them, God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. The only reason they could be described that way is because of Jesus. And it's true for us. The only reason that we can be described with those terms is because of Jesus. But it also takes it a little further because remember Paul's writing this so that they know how to conduct themselves. And what Paul's really trying to say here is the only way in which you can conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of these descriptions is through Jesus. And I'm, I'm, I'm not like a, a conspiracy guy when it comes to scripture. I'm not a numbers guy, you know, thinking that some intentional verses were this number or that number. Some random dude a long time ago gave verse numbers to these things, okay? So I don't think that God's spirit was working in some crazy way in that dude's life. But total coincidence, I'm studying this chapter three, verse 16, and what other verse in the scripture is very popular with that same address, 316? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will not perish or die, but have eternal life. And those two words, so that, are, are key words in that passage. Without Jesus, there is no so that. I mean, Jesus is literally the so that of, of that equation. And he, what I want you to see is he is the so that for you. God sent his son, Jesus, to die so that 
You can have life and not die and go to hell for your sin. But it goes further than that. He's, he's the so that so that you can grow in godliness into the man or woman that, that God has created you to be. But he's not just the so that for you. He's the so that for us together. So that our family can grow. So that our family can grow and we can love people and pull people in like a family would. And, and so that when God is on the move, we can move with him. And so that we can hold Jesus up as high as we possibly can so everybody in our city and on our campus can see him. Those things are impossible apart from Jesus working in us. But he's also the so that for the 51,000 college students that are here in Denton. He died so that they too can share in this mysterious eternal life that we talk about. God sent Jesus so that they could be set free, so that some of you could be set free from the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the sadness that you're dealing with, from the abuse that you're dealing with, from the addictions. Jesus is the so that for you, so that you can be set free from the slavery and the bondage that you're living in towards sin and set free from death and live in this right relationship with God that you were created for. So we're asking this question, what are we, what are we supposed to do now? Seniors, what are you supposed to do now? Freshmen, sophomores, juniors, what are you supposed to do now? And, and the answer to the question, what, am I, what are we supposed to do now, becomes really, really clear when we first understand who we are. We are God's household. We are the church of the living God and we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now let's answer that question. What are you supposed to do?